Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive into what is probably the most controversial chapter in the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us home safely. Thank you for this group of people who are watching tonight, maybe watching on tape, but all of them have one thing in common is they want to know your word better. We love you, and we want to know you better. I pray that you will be with us as we reason together, as we examine the faith that we hold, and for those that do not yet hold that faith, that they have the open mind to come examine the scriptures, I pray you would bless our endeavors. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's see. We have finished the tribulation. Remember the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3? I repeat this all the time because you're going to know this when we're done. Chapters 1 through 3, letters to the seven churches. These are probably the words of Jesus that get read the least in the Bible. This is Jesus speaking to seven churches. Chapters 4 through 19, called the tribulation. It's a series of three sets of seven judgments. Remember, we had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. And depending on your point of view, the question is, when will those things happen? In our last lesson, we saw the end of that tribulation with the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. So the way that piece of Revelation is organized is simply how you answer this question or how you understand the Scripture more accurately. How you understand the Scriptures to answer this question is how you'll see that. And uh, there's a great deal of agreement, but it differs in this point. If you think chapters 4 through 19 happened in the past, that's called a preterist approach to it. If you're convinced the Scripture is talking about something that happened in the past. Again, these aren't made-up opinions. These are people studying the Scripture and, and being sincerely convinced of when these things happen. Historicist says, you know what? It appears that this scripture in chapters 4 through 19 are talking about all of history between the first and second coming. And it's sort of a roadmap, if you will. Futurists say it appears that chapters 4 through 19 will happen in a seven-year time period in the future. And then symbolic says it's the wrong question. These things have happened over and over and they're true many times over, and they speak about recurring truths throughout all of Christian history. So all of those are orthodox views on chapters 4 through 19. I hope you've gotten a sense that all of those views agree on all of the essential items uh, in the Scripture and all the essential doctrines. So I did tell you that I'd give you my personal view on that, and so before we leave that and go into the next part, and this is, this is my personal view. It does not bother me if you don't hold this view. In, in my studies, I'm convinced that there may very well be a specific antichrist, a specific false prophet, and this may occur in a specific seven-year time period in the future. I think that is entirely possible. I am convinced, however, that the gist of chapters 4 through 19, so I would take a more symbolic view, is that I believe that those things have happened many times. I think it's true more than once. Maybe that's an easy way to say it. I think chapters 4 through 19 are true now as much as they'll be true in the future and as much as they have been true in history. A lot of Christians have read that passage through times of persecution because the truths there of God's care for his people and God's overcoming have been very, very comforting to Christians throughout the past 2,000 years. So I would tend to take a more symbolic approach, not meaning it's not true, 
meaning that it's been true several times, it will be true several more times. So again, you, you may have a slightly different view and I'm perfectly comfortable with that, but I find that that really applies the scripture to us today just like it has to Christians in the past. Well, how you see those uh, chapters really doesn't overlap how you see the next set of chapters. Chapter 20, and we're going to go through the whole chapter because it's only 15 verses, but it is packed. And the essential feature of chapter 20 is what is called the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the Latin word for a thousand years is a millennium. And so the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So what is your view of chapter 20 depends on when you think this millennium is going to happen in comparison to the second coming of Christ. And we'll talk about that and I'll show you some charts so this will make more sense. But there are three basic ways people look at chapter 20. And by the way, this millennium only appears in chapter 20 in Revelation, nowhere else in the Bible. And so it's very specific to this chapter. It comes right after the time of tribulation and it begins to talk about a thousand-year reign of Christ. So if you think that the second coming of Christ is going to happen before the thousand-year reign that we're going to talk about in a second, that's called premillennial. Millennial meaning thousand-year reign, pre meaning before, meaning Christ is going to come before the thousand-year reign. In other words, you think he came last week at Armageddon. And so now this week we begin the thousand-year reign. I hope that this class doesn't feel like a thousand years to you, but we're beginning the thousand-year reign. So pre-millennial says Christ will come, then the thousand-year reign. Post-millennial says, post meaning after, says Christ will come after the thousand-year reign. And so that's a post-millennial view. And then the third view is called amillennial. Ah, meaning not meaning there is no literal thousand-year reign. Not that chapter 20 is not true, it simply is symbolic. Thousand years is simply talking about a long time of Christ's rule. And so there's not a specific thousand years when Christ will rule on the earth. So Christ comes before, premillennial. Christ comes after, postmillennial. Christ comes, but there's not a literal thousand years. That's talking about something else, amillennial. Hopefully that kind of frames it up. So we're going to go through the text because there's exciting stuff happens in chapter 20. Then I want to walk through those charts so that you kind of understand what's happening and we'll distill some key learnings, okay? So first, we will start with chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. So remember what just happened. Armageddon just happened. Christ came and he destroyed the enemies by the sword of his mouth, basically talking about the word of God. The truth of his word convicted all those who were against him. The Antichrist and the false prophet were taken and thrown into the lake of fire. So chapter 20 opens right after that with another vision. He says, right after I saw that, then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, 
bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So, this millennium, this thousand-year reign, comes from this idea. Satan is going to be, after the battle of Armageddon, Antichrist, false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire, Satan is bound and put into the abyss for a thousand years to be released later, and then we'll see his doom before the end of the chapter. So there's essentially where the thousand years come in. First time in the Bible you see this idea happening in this thing is this thousand-year binding of Satan. Now, how do those other views play in with this? Mix and match. For example, remember I told you the historicist view of the tribulation, meaning chapters 4 through 19, talked about all of history. Historicists see the Antichrist as the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And so, for example, John Wesley, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they all had a historicist view of the tribulation, but they have an amillennial view of chapter 20. The premillennial and postmillennial tend to line up better with the futurists. But in other words, how you understand the tribulation doesn't necessarily dictate how you must understand this passage. It's kind of a separate vision and it sort of stands on its own. Okay, uh, let's look at the next passage. He said, then, so Satan is bound for a thousand years, then I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. So now we've had Armageddon, you're going to see a judgment happening. This is like the last judgment. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. By the way, think about John writing this, and my suggestion to you is he's writing it about 95 AD, near the end of his life, he received these visions, he's writing it down. His compatriots, Peter, remember Peter, the other apostle, so close to John, and Paul, whom John also knew, they were both, by the way, uh, Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified about, oh, 25 years before that. So I can't help but think, he's thinking about people like that who have been killed by the Antichrist, by the forces of evil, for their faith. He said, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands, the 666, they came to life. They were resurrected from the dead and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this millennium time, you see two things happening. Satan is bound, and then those who have died martyrs for Christ are raised from the dead and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, one of the interesting things here is who are the people who can give an authority to judge? And there are all kinds of ideas because the text doesn't make it clear. Is it the 24 elders that we saw back in the tribulation time period who had thrones around the great throne of God? Is it God and the angels? Uh, unlikely, it seems. Is it Christians? 
because there's a hint in the New Testament that we as Christians will literally be involved in judging the world in some way or another. No one really knows, but the idea is you get you see this judgment scene. There's an accountability about to happen for the entire world. Then we'll kind of move on through this. When the thousand years are over, so now we've had the thousand year reign, Satan's bound, thousand years, Christ reigns a thousand years with those who had been faithful to him. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like sand on the seashore. So they're going to be these great armies. Satan goes out, deceives the kings of the earth. Sounds a lot like Armageddon, doesn't it? And brings them to uh, their armies, limitless armies, it says. They're like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. If this is a literal place, that means Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, Satan, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is unbound. He continues his job of rebelling against God. He deceives the nations, and he tries again, if you think these are two different events, to conquer God's people, and they're destroyed by fire. And he is cast into, typically, next time week we'll talk about heaven and hell a little bit because that's the way Revelation ends, but he's thrown into this lake of burning fire, which most people think of as being hell or the eternal punishment, eternal judgment. So Satan then is, you see his doom, and then finally, I think I did that wrong, sorry about that. Then I saw the great white throne, and him who was seated on it, this is God, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name, eternal death, not just death of your body. We're talking about eternal death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, short, concise chapter that has generated more arguments than probably any other chapter in the Bible. So, just basic chronology. What happens? Satan is bound, thousand years. Christ comes, rules on the earth with some group of faithful believers. Different people have different opinions of who will rule with him for a thousand years. The end of the thousand years, Satan is set free, deceives the nations, tries to rebel again, is destroyed, and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And then you have final judgment, and God judges everyone according to what they have done and whether their name is written in the book of life. And if it is not, then they are cast into the lake of fire, lake of sulfur. So that's chapter 20 in a nutshell. So it's really easy to say. Really interesting to interpret. So let me pause before we go into how people see these events and what they mean. Question? Are the thousand years a literal thousand years as we know them? There Are the thousand years a literal thousand years as we know them? Therein lies the $64,000 question. You know, a couple of these views are going to say, yes, it is. 
and a couple of these views are going to say, no, it's not. It's a symbolic number. And so there's quite a debate raging about whether or not it's reasonable to understand 1,000 years, this millennium that's mentioned here, as a very fixed period of time, or is it like 40 days? Is it like horns meaning power? I mean, we've seen all kinds of symbols, really specific symbols, that you can use to decode it. Is this another one? And so the difference of opinion there is part of what's going to split the premillennialists and the amillennialists, which we'll get to in a second. That's a good question. Do futurists and historicists believe in a thousand years? Do futurists and historicists believe in the thousand year reign? Everybody believes this is true. Okay, I may make sure I don't mislead you. All of the points of view believe that chapter 20 is true. The question is, what does it specifically mean? And so futurists tend to hold to this being a literal 1,000-year reign in the future. That's very consistent with how futurists view the tribulation and the millennium. Historicists, like Wesley and Luther, for example, hold to an amillennial view. But there are other historicists who would hold to a literal 1,000 years. So they don't necessarily line up perfectly. Futurists tend to see it as a literal 1,000 years, although there's some exceptions to that. Historicists tend to more be symbolic. That's just the way they tend to break out on that. Um, do the passages in Isaiah refer to the millennium, the lion lays down with the lamb? Uh, do the passage in Isaiah talking about the, it's basically a messianic prophecy, uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb. If you understand, all, all those prophecies are going to fit so nicely if you're a premillennialist. I mean, and this is why some people are premillennialists, and we'll get to it in just a second. But if you understand that the Messiah is going to usher in a time of peace and is going to reign over all of creation, then yes, you will understand that passage in Isaiah as referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in the future. Yes, that's a very consistent way to look at those prophecies. It's not the only way to look at those prophecies, but a very consistent way to look at those prophecies. Good question. Okay, well, I want to talk about two things first before we jump in. The first thing I want to tell you is what we're seeing right now is Satan being bound and then destroyed, Christ actually reigning, and then the great judgment I want you to stop and think for just a minute, uh, just a little faith lesson here. This is the end of the trajectory of sin. This is where a life of rebellion against God, and sometimes we don't think our sin is rebellion against God, but we are either serving God or we are serving some other God, whether it's ourself or our own way. I mean, Jesus says, you know, choose, you know, narrow gate, wide gate, right? This is the end of the trajectory of sin. Look at, I'll just give you one passage. The New Testament talks about this a lot, and I want you to see the consistency in the New Testament. Okay, that's just in case you can't read it very well. All right, as for you, <laughs> Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. I mean, you were walking dead people. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Decode this, really simple. The ruler of the spirits of the air is Satan. 
He wants to be God. He wants to deceive you, entice you, tempt you to follow something else. Sex, power, drugs, rock and roll, I don't know, whatever it is. He wants to tempt you to live your own life the way you want. Christ calls us to a life of obedience, a life of sacrifice to Christ who gives us a new life. So you have these two courses. He says, you used to, all of us used to follow that ruler of the powers of the air. He said, and when you did, you were walking dead people. You were dead, you just didn't know it yet. And my point is, that tell, is that trajectory ends in chapter 20 of Revelation. That is where living for self ends. It ends in a lake of fire. It ends in a book being opened and God saying, guess what, I really am God, and a bunch of people going, uh-oh, right? And God saying, this is your life, and it doesn't measure up. I mean, they said, yes, I've been a rebel. I've been disobedient. I've got, I got nothing here. You know, I got nothing, right? And that's where that trajectory ends, and I think that's important to realize that, is that the Scripture is consistent. This is the end of the story where living a life for self ends, according to the Bible. Next passage talks about this. Then the end will come. This is 1 Corinthians, Paul talking about the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all the other authorities in this world, talking about the Antichrist, Satan, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This also ties up a thread. So there's a thread in the Bible that says, will you follow Christ or will you not? And Romans says, and Jesus says, one way leads to life and one way leads to death. Chapter 20 is the end of the trajectory of the way that leads to death. Death itself gets thrown into the lake of fire. That ends a thread that starts in Genesis. I want you to think about the Garden of Eden, and we'll see this next week too, where the Bible comes completely full circle. In, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were created in the garden. Adam and Eve weren't meant to die. Adam and Eve were created with bodies that don't wear out. They are intended and created good the way God made them to be. When sin entered into the garden, death entered into the garden. You understand what I'm saying? Is that that's not the way God intended the world to be. But we in our sin have broken that relationship with God and all of creation, the whole universe, has been decaying ever since. And so every single one of us since that day has to go through the door of death. That was not the way God intended it to be. Finally at the end, Christ has redeemed us, and now death rules no more. Death is destroyed. Does that make sense? There will be no more death. There is eternal life. I just want you to see the idea of death entering the world, and Christ's, God's whole purpose, and particularly in Christ, through the rest of the story of humanity, is to bring us to this point where death itself is defeated and we no longer need to die. Does that make sense to you? I want you to see how the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one very consistent story and God has a very specific purpose and Jesus Christ accomplished that purpose. Now he can say to death, you no longer reign over these people. They will live forever. So death itself is destroyed.
So a couple of threads I wanted to pull together. Next time, you'll see the ultimate end of the scriptures. You'll see the ultimate aim of God in the story of humanity. But in between then and now, let's talk about um, these charts. First, premillennialism comes in two flavors. So I want to talk to you about premillennialism first, two flavors. I want you to remember, we are now seeing charts that help you to understand how people view this chapter. But it's really helpful to look at it in a chart in this way. Historic premillennialism is probably, probably, somebody's going to argue with me about this, but I think it's probably the oldest view of chapter 20 by Christians. I think Christians early on thought about chapter 20 and the millennium in this way. And it's going to resonate with you a little bit. I think you'll, uh, you'll probably like this. So you have the church age, so the time we're in right now. There's a seven-year period of tribulation. Remember, that's chapters 4 through 19 of Revelation. Then you have a literal thousand years of reign of Christ. That's chapter 20. And then you have eternity from there on. The second coming of Christ is before his reign on earth. And you go, well, of course, he's got to come before he can reign on earth. Makes perfect sense, but here's what I want to point out to you. So this is a very historic way of understanding it. It takes the chronology of the book of Revelation as being very linear. It's very appealing. Most people are premillennialists. I mean, in America, if you just did a poll of people who understand what premillennialism is, most of them are premillennialists. For those who don't understand what it is, they're still premillennialists. They just don't know what they are. Basically, if you take it in a linear time frame, you've got chapters 4 through 19, and you're a futurist. Seven-year tribulation. Then chapter 20, what happens? Satan is bound. Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. This is a very linear chronology, and Christ comes before the millennium. So it's premillennial. But there are some interesting implications from this. By the way, there are some problems with this view, and I won't spend a lot of time pointing that out because there are pros and cons to each one of these views. This is going to seem really logical to you, but there are actually some quite significant issues with this. I mean, we just destroyed all the nations of the earth in chapter 19, for example. It's really hard to figure out where they're coming from in chapter 20. Right? Satan gets out after a thousand years and goes into all the earth and brings all these armies. We just destroyed those guys in chapter 19. So my point is, none of these views are without some argument and trouble, hence all the arguments for all the time. But leaving that aside, there's some interesting things. Here, the thousand years is a literal thousand years on this planet. It's a thousand-year reign of Christ on this planet. Another interesting thing about this, by the way, is uh, this is totally off the subject, but it's just too cool not to mention. So the Jewish calendar, I'm talking about Orthodox Jews now, Orthodox Jewish calendar dates, time starts at Adam and Eve, okay? And then you go add up all the time through the Old Testament, you know, so-and-so lived so many years and begat so-and-so who lived so many years and they begat so-and-so. If you just sort of add it up the best you can, Jews, not all Jews, Orthodox Jews think that the earth is 5,778 years old. In other words, if you look at Jewish dating, 
from Orthodox Jews, this is the year 5,778. So I just think that's kind of interesting. If you're going to have a thousand year reign, now Orthodox Jews totally get off the train here because we're in the New Testament now. But if you think about seven days of creation, right? And so we're about to end 6,000 years of history, according to Orthodox Jews, and then Christ comes and you have a thousand year reign. Think about that. What that means is Christ is coming again in 22 years. So does that make any sense to anybody else? So if you're an Orthodox Jew and you become a Christian, you could have this view. Just kidding. <laughs> it's just interesting to me that the millennium and how it fits in. But Satan is not bound at the cross here. Satan is going to be bound in that 1,000 years Satan is not bound right now. Satan's out there doing all kinds, probably whispering in Vladimir Putin's ear and Kim Jong-un, no offense to those guys, that was a joke, but maybe not. In other words, Satan is out there deceiving the nations, trying to oppress God's people, right? So this view says Satan's running around loose right now, won't be bound until later. It also says the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. Because notice, we're in the church age, we're going to go to the Great Tribulation. So what do you think is happening right now? Expect the world to get worse. And then we'll kick into chapter 4 through 19 and things get really bad. And then we'll have the second coming of Christ and the millennium. Does that make sense? You, if with this view, you expect things to continue to get worse in our world. Got to admit, pick up the paper, maybe so. But it has a, a what is, I would call a pessimistic view of the way things are going to happen in the world, that they're going to get worse and worse and worse. I'm not saying it's untrue. I'm just saying one of the implications of this. Uh, you notice there's no rapture here. Uh, historic premillennialism, remember I told you that rapture of Christ coming and whisking the church off is a relatively new idea. We'll talk about it in a minute. Historic premillennialism doesn't think that there's not going to be a resurrection. They just think the, resurrect, the second coming of Christ and the rapture are the same thing. In other words, there's no rapture particularly mentioned anywhere in the Bible that when Christ comes, the second coming of Christ, at the end of the Great Tribulation, that's the rapture and the second coming all rolled together. Okay? That implies that the church is here during the Great Tribulation. So there are some implications of this view. All right? That's historic. The other, one last thing is the church has replaced Israel as God's people. This view tends to say that God had a covenant with the Jews, Jesus Christ came, the church is now God's people. And Jews who believe in Jesus Christ become part of God's people, the church. But Jews who do not believe in Jesus Christ, God is finished with that covenant. This may be a little harsh, but in other words, God is now working through believers. He is finished with the old covenant. That's an implication of this historic uh, premillennialism as well. So let me give you another version of premillennialism that differs just a little bit from this. This is called dispensational premillennialism. This is relatively new, about in the 1860s. I mean, this view has been around for 140, 50 years. So it's not a historically a view. That's why it's called historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. Notice a little bit of a difference here. One is that you, uh, again, you have the church age, 
But notice you've got this covenant with Israel here. And this view doesn't think God's finished with that. Not finished with the Old, Old Testament yet. Notice here you have a rapture. That would be a pre-tribulation rapture, right? The church gets taken off the earth before the seven-year tribulation. And then at the end, you have the general second coming. Then you have, so this is fourth, chapters 4 through 19. This is chapter 20, that this millennium is a literal 1,000 years on this earth and Christ is reigning. But now he's reigning with Jews who have become Christians. And he's going to finish God's promises to Israel. So in other words, think of it this way. God's covenant with Israel, Jesus comes, commercial break. Here are all the Christians. Okay, rapture happens, commercial is over. Back to the story. And now Jews accept Christ and reign for a thousand years, and Isaiah kicks in and the lion lays down with the lamb, and the promises to Abraham are completely fulfilled. So one of the distinctives of dispensational view is that God isn't finished with Israel, that Israel is going to become Christian. Jews will become Christians and rule with Christ for a thousand years. They will rule from Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt. So it's still pre-millennial, second coming of Christ, thousand-year reign, just a disagreement about uh, who's going to be doing the reigning. And Israel plays a part in it. That's not a historic view, but it's a recent view. This is Left Behind series. Left Behind series is dispensational premillennialism. That's what it is popularizing. So I don't say that as good or bad. I'm just saying if you're familiar with that series, this is that view. Uh, it talks about Israel finally inheriting the land, that the, they believe in the Messiah, Jesus, and he rules over this kingdom and all those Old Testament promises become literally fulfilled in that literal 1,000-year reign. So that is dispensational premillennialism, all right? So what are, what's another view? Let's go to the flip side of this. Let's talk about postmillennialism. So what if you think Jesus is going to come after the 1,000-year reign? That's what postmillennial uh, means. This is different in one sense. So what are we talking about here? This is, by the way, when I was a kid, I didn't know it, but uh, I didn't grow up Christian, but I grew up in a family that believed basically in the Bible. And so when I was taught, I was not taught anything really very structured, this is what I was taught. And here's how it sounds when you're a kid. And this is, makes a lot of sense. Post-millennialism was, was very popular, kind of making a comeback, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But Basically, what I was told was, Jesus Christ came, we're going to have a lot of trouble on the earth, and but the good news of the gospel is going to prevail. It's going to overcome even the evil on this earth, and then Christ is going to come and judge everybody, and we will live forever with Christ, either in heaven or in hell. That's post-millennialism. Does, does that make sense? Did some of you grow up hearing that story? I didn't hear about a thousand-year reign. I didn't read chapter 20 of Revelation. I just heard that Christ came. He will come again. We will have trouble in this world, but we will overcome because the power of Christ overcomes. He'll come, set up the judgment throne. We get judged, and we go to heaven or we go to hell. That's post-millennialism. You don't have a Jesus comes, thousand-year reign on the earth, etc. So when I was a kid... This is basically the, you know, what I was told was the way it works. So here we are in the church age, 
at some point in time, you'll see two things happening. Typically, post-millennialists don't think the millennium will be a literal 1,000 years. It's simply going to be that time period where the reign of Christ ends up extending itself over all the earth. So you will see the forces of evil and tribulation happening. So basically, chapters 4 through 19 and 20 are all happening in here. And what is happening is this. As you and I and Christians go do what Jesus told us to do, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, that the kingdom of God, that group of people that are following Jesus Christ, will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And the forces of evil and antichrists, whatever, are going to be fighting against the church, but it will not prevail. The good news of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, will ultimately ultimately prevail and overcome evil in this time period. And so Christ is reigning on the earth right now, wherever his kingdom is, meaning wherever there are people who follow him, he reigns over us. And that's going to extend itself to the whole world. The gospel is going to overpower all of the evil in the world. That's post-millennialism. And when that happens, Christ will come again. He will judge the world We'll go into So you see the millennium as the reign of Christ, that, that's happening now, post-millennialists say. He reigns, the kingdom of God is here right now, and it is growing. Post-millennialism is optimistic. Post-millennialism says things are going to get better and better. If we'll get out there and preach the gospel, more people become Christians, the world becomes a better place. We're already in the tribulation. There are already all kinds of persecution going on. But if we will persevere, think China. Church in China, for example. You've probably heard the statistics, but China has been very unfriendly to Christianity. And yet, the Christian church in China has exploded. I mean, there are more Christians in China than many other nations, and it's not even okay to be a Christian in China. This is what post-millennialists are talking about. I said, trust the power of the gospel. Go do what God told you. Go preach the word, and it will overcome evil. So that's post-millennialism. They think if we'll go do what God told us to do, the world's going to get better. And you'll see the second coming. So chapter 20 is very true, just not a specific literal thousand years. We're in that time period now. We're in the tribulation and the millennium kind of at the same time. So that's a post-millennial view. Uh, Post-millennials think that thousand-year reign might be literal, but most people don't. Uh, most of them think it's a long period of time where the gospel is going to be preached. Interesting thing, unlike pre-millennials who think Satan is running around doing his worst right now and he's going to be bound in the future, post-millennials think he's bound now. He got bound at the cross. When Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, he bound Satan. There's an interesting, uh, very interesting story Jesus told. In the Gospel of Matthew, he basically is saying this. If you want to rob a strong man's house, you can't do it until you tie up the strong man. And then you can go in and rob his house. And he's talking about Satan, and he says, I'm going to overcome Satan, but you can't go in and destroy his kingdom until you've tied him up. And the implicit idea there is, is when Christ was raised from the dead, Satan is defeated. Satan is bound. In other words, he can't stop the good news of the gospel. He can't keep you from being saved. He can't keep you from eternity. He can't keep you from having eternal life, which was what he was trying to do. Christ defeated him at the cross. Colossians says this, that at the cross, Christ humiliated 
the powers of this world and overcame them. So post-millennialists would say, Satan, uh, he's trying to do his best, but Satan does, is not the ruler anymore. The gospel is taking over this world. So you see the difference in pre- and post-millennial? It's more than just when Jesus came. It's kind of your attitude about where's the world going, okay? Question before we get to uh, amillennialism? Yes. So if Satan can't deceive the nations during the thousand years, wouldn't everyone become Christian? If Satan is not able to deceive the nations during the thousand years, wouldn't everybody become a Christian? Well, most people don't think necessarily so for several reasons. Number one, Christ said there's a narrow gate. In other words, our power for self-deception is pretty huge. Never underestimate people's love for themselves and want to live their life their own way. It's not all Satan having control over us. We own you know, what we choose to do. Most people think when Satan is bound, it doesn't mean he's not at work in the world. It means that he doesn't have the power to deceive the nations. In other words, he no longer is mover and shaker in the world. But that temptations, uh, he's very free to try to entice and tempt us. He just does not have the power to coerce anymore. Maybe that's a good way to think about it. So who will join Satan when he comes back at the end of the millennium, when he's released? Are non-believers on the earth during those years, and will they join him? Well, that's one of the difficulties. Who will join Satan at the end of the thousand years? Because they just got toasted, you know, at Armageddon in chapter 19. That's one of the difficulties with that millennial view. It's not fatal. I mean, I'm just trying to be fair here and say that is one of the difficulties. Where did those unbelievers come from at the end of the thousand years? Is it that people during the thousand-year reign of Christ still choose to believe or not, and that there are people who don't believe? It's awkward, and it's a little hard to figure that part out. That's why uh, post-millennials and amillennials don't really hold to that view. They want to see, they don't hold to as linear a chronology. It's not that people don't think this chapter is true. Every one of these views think this chapter is true. But let me just change one assumption. What if chapter 20 does not come chronologically after chapter 19? Because there's no reason that it has to. This is a series of apocalyptic visions. In other words, John had the vision in chapter 20 after he had the vision in chapter 19. Does that make sense? But who said that what he saw in chapter 20 has to be happening after chapter 19? In other words, why does the chronology have to be linear? Apocalyptic literature, in fact, would argue it's not a very linear genre, you know? Got a lot of symbolism, you got a lot of ideas floating around. If you change that one assumption, you go from being a premillennialist to probably being an amillennialist. So it kind of hinges on whether or not you think chapter 19 happens, then 20 happens, or it could be chapter 20 is a flashback. A lot of people think chapter 20, Satan being bound, oh, that's talking about the cross of Christ. He's telling me another story now. In fact, some people think chapter 20 is just retelling you the whole story again, right? Christ died on the cross, Satan was bound. Thousand years, this is what post-millennialists would say, thousand years, gospel's out there overcoming evil in the world. God, Christ is gonna come back at the end of some period of time and judge the world and we go to heaven or we go to hell. They're like, hey, chapter 20 just told you the whole thing. It's sort of like if you didn't have time to read chapters four through 19, you could just read the Reader's Digest version in chapter 20. So for that's how you would get around that issue. But that's a good question. And people, you know, there's pros and cons to that. 
On all of these charts, there appears to be an abrupt end of the church age and a movement into the tribulation. What happens at that time, and will we know it? Good question. On these charts, you tend, except the next chart, you tend to see an abrupt end of the church age and a beginning of the tribulation. That's man-made idea. Uh, I'll show you the next chart right now, which is going to kind of give you another view. Look at... uh, I'll tell you what, PowerPoint and I are having our issues tonight. Fine, do it your way. All right, so amillennialism. Notice here you have the cross. This is the church age, right? First coming, second coming, right there. You're in the tribulation and you're in the millennium. That makes sense? So for example, that view doesn't have a specific beginning. But let, So having said that, let me return to the question. The other views think there's a specific beginning, and they believe it happens when you start seeing the things in chapter 4 through 19 happen. That's why premillennialists in particular watch the headlines, and they're like, when is the tribulation going to start? When do we start the countdown? So if you're a futurist, tribulation's going to happen. After seven years, thousand-year reign is going to happen. You're watching to say, wonder when that tribulation is going to happen. And you're looking for political events that match up with chapters 4 through 19. So most Christians who have that view are looking to see what's happening in the world and seeing does it match up. So when you read a lot of the books on the end times that are out there on the Christian market, that's essentially what they're doing. They're basically pre-millennial views, and they're writing books about, and I'm not knocking this, I'm just trying to put it in context for you. When you read a book and it says, uh, you know, Ahmadinejad is doing this, and Russia's getting together, and the Iran nuclear deal, and boy, it sure looks like these things in chapter 4 through 19 are lining up, that's what they're doing. They're basically trying to analyze when that tribulation will happen. So premillennial view is very interested in when will that start and tends to always be looking at current political events. Amillennialists probably don't even read the paper because it's like, hey, we're already in it, you know, so no reason. What does the reign of Christ mean? What does the reign of Christ mean? That is a great question. Couple of ideas. Um... Everybody will agree with the first idea, not everybody will agree with the second idea. First idea, the reign of Christ talks about his sovereignty. So for example, let me give you, this is not a perfect example, but for example, you follow, you and I follow the rules and laws of the United States because we are citizens here. We are obligated to follow those laws and rules. We're motivated to follow those laws and rules because this is our country, it's where we live. We're invested in this. So we willingly and also abide by the rules in this place. We don't care what the laws are in Soviet Russia, for example, because we don't follow those. We're not a citizen of that. We don't follow those rules. Would Vladimir Putin like for us to follow those rules? Of course he would love for us to follow those rules. But he's not sovereign in the United States. He doesn't have authority in the United States. We don't obey him. That's a simple example, right? Think about the reign of Christ that way. Christ reigns wherever he is sovereign, wherever 
He has authority. Scripture says he will end up having authority over everything in creation. And that's what you're seeing happen in chapter 20. But my point to you is he has authority and reigns today wherever he is sovereign. Jesus Christ is sovereign in our lives. We said, I have died to self and I live to Christ. In other words, you are my Lord. You are my ruler. You are my master. Paul says, a bunch of us were studying uh, Acts chapter 27 today, and Paul talks about God in this way. He said, the God to whom I belong. In other words, I am his. What's that saying? He has sovereignty. Whose laws do I follow? Christ's laws. Who do I try to emulate? Christ. So he, is, he reigns wherever he is sovereign, wherever amongst his followers. He will eventually reign over all creation. So everybody will agree with that part. The reign of Christ is wherever he is sovereign, wherever he has authority and rules. Second part, not everybody will agree with. If you're premillennialist, you will say, oh yes, that's true, and the reign of Christ will be during a thousand years in the future. He will physically be on this earth. He will physically be sitting uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he will indeed be ruling this world in a political as well as a spiritual sense. So that was kind of long-winded, but everybody will agree with the first part. Premillennialists see it also in a more specific way in the future. So does it mean that no evil can take place while Christ is reigning? Does it mean what? I'm sorry. Did... No evil can happen on the wor in the world while Christ is reigning. Does that mean that no evil can happen in the world while Christ is reigning? The text doesn't say, but if you're a premillennialist, it seems to me you're going to have to say no, that Christ's power is not coercive and will not allow anything because you got a bunch of bad guys that show up at the end of the thousand years. They had to come from somewhere. So I, I think most people would say no, Christ isn't going to make you do the right thing, but he is going to reign on the earth to fulfill, typically, the promises to Israel. But there will still be bad guys. There will still be people who are anti-Christ, against Christ. How did the Futurist view become so popular in America, considering its relative newness? How did the dispensational view, dispensational premillennial view becomes so popular in America. That's just more a matter of effect. It's a powerful set of ideas with some very eloquent proponents. It makes some sense of the dispensational view has more to, to do than just revelation, but it makes some sense of the scripture overall. It is a, an interpretive approach to the scripture that's very appealing to some people. It got very popularized through things like the Left Behind series, fictional accounts that were easy to understand. So here you are motivated to talk about the deep, think about how smart you have to be. Think about how motivated you are, that you are giving up an hour of your life to talk about the intricacies of premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. You are really smarter than the average bear, okay? But everybody will read a cool novel that basically encodes these ideas. Hats off to popularizing that view through those ways. So I think that's one of the reasons that it became really popular. If this is linear and we can know the seven years and the thousand years when they stop and start, then wouldn't we know when Jesus was going to return? 
If indeed that whole Jewish calendar thing is right, and this thousand years is the seventh day, the seventh thousand years, then we would know exactly when, which leads me to believe, yeah, it's probably not right. Because <laughs> the one thing I do know is we do not know is it, when that yes, will happen. He's supposed to come like a thief in the night. Supposed to come like a thief in the night. That's right. Good, good point. I just thought that was interesting. Last view, amillennialism. Amillennialism thinks chapter 20 is true, but now you're starting to see, okay, if I just change the assumption of when this happened and say, what if Satan is bound at the cross because Christ defeated him? Chapter 4 through 19 says there are forces of evil out there that are trying to stamp out the church that are anti-Christ. There are people who say, I want to be God, not you, and Satan is behind that. And at the same time, the gospel is out there spreading in the world at the exact same time, and Christ's reign on the earth, the kingdom of God, is growing and growing and growing and growing. And then he's going to come again, and the judgment, everyone will be judged based on what they've done, and we go to eternity, either heaven or hell. That's chapter 20. And if you don't assume that it happens after chapter 19, you just told the whole history of humanity right there. That's what amillennialists think. They think this is a very symbolic account, but a very simple, accurate little statement of the first and second coming of Christ. Does that make sense? I want you to understand why amillennialists think the way they do. Because I think most people understand premillennialists. You just simply change one assumption, that it's linear chronology. This is basically retelling you the whole story, just telling it to you in 15 verses. That's an amillennial view. It says, hey, tribulation's happening right now. By the way, amillennialists read the book of Revelation more. Why? Because they don't think it's going to happen in the future. They think it's happening right now, that there are important things in this book, important uh, encouragement that we need because we are in the middle of a tribulation. We're in the middle of persecution. And at the same time, we're in the middle of spreading the gospel in the world and God's uh, kingdom growing. That makes sense, doesn't it? we got both of these things happening at the same time. We're literally living the book of Revelation right now. That's an amillennial view. So all three Orthodox Christian views, all three think this is true, just trying to understand the scripture about when will these things happen. So a couple of lessons, that out of time, but I want to at least hit just a couple of ideas here. And one is this, the great white throne judgment, the second coming of Christ and judgment is Basically, God delivering on his promise to do justice in the world. If you think about the problem of evil, since the time of Christ, actually before, you have seen evil and oppression in this world. And people have always turned to God and said, why? Why do you allow this evil? How long, O oh Lord, you know, will you tolerate the evil of humanity and the oppression that's happening. The great white throne is God's answer. Now, I deal with justice throughout all of history. Without this judgment, without heaven and hell, there is no justice. You cannot, in my view, you cannot answer the problem of evil in the world. And I think if you are not Christian, you have a major problem coming up with any rational answer to the problem of evil in the world. But without judgment, without the great white throne, you have a God that does not do justice in the world. It's essential. It's essential to God's promises for us. Second thing is, Satan had a grand plan. 
of world domination. Chapter 20 is where he runs smack into a wall. I mean, in other words, it seems sometimes, we've talked a lot about the tribulation, how powerful evil seems to be in the world, how persuasive, how overwhelming, you know, evil and ungodliness and unrighteousness and sin seems to be so powerful. Chapter 20 says, let me just tell you how this plays out. It plays out with Satan losing, Satan being destroyed, and justice being done. That is hugely essential to God's promise. That's what God is saying. If you trust me, I will do justice. And no matter how strong evil seems, this is how it ends. It ends being thrown into the lake of fire, if you will. Whether you think that's literal or not, we'll talk about that next time. But my point is, it's not good. I don't know if you're in a literal lake of fire or a figurative lake of fire, it's still bad news, right? So my point is, the, this chapter is really important, regardless of your view, because this is where God makes good on so many of his promises. Make sense? So no matter what you're going through, God is not only able to make it right, he is willing to make it right. He simply will do it in his time. So your assignment this week is to decide, am I a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist? just in time next time to talk about some really interesting views about the new heaven and the new earth. And I really think I want to challenge your views about heaven next week. It may not be exactly what you think it is. It might be better. So I'll talk to you about that next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>